on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The year is 1978, and hey, creep. Hey, hey, this podcast wants to talk to you. This podcast wants to take you out tonight. The movie? Halloween. And welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, And we are endeavoring to find the best films ever made. And when we do, we're going to send them to outer space. And Amy, we are in the middle of our horror series. And I'm so excited to talk about Halloween because it's a movie like Shrek where it's become so iconic that I kind of forget like where its origins are. Like Mike Myers is such a part of American pop culture. You can kind of forget that when this movie came out, this is like straight up terrifying. Uh, Can I just say that that is an all-star analogy that I'm sort of offended by? But sure, <laughs> sure, let's run with that. Well, like, you know what I'm saying? It like becomes <laughs> so commercialized at a certain point that you, you lose like sight of the fact that like this was made in an era where... America is going through a change. And and I think John Carpenter, we're going to talk about this in the episode where he, he's reacting to the changes in American society. He's reacting to what he grew up, you know, the world that he grew up in, in the South. There's, there's a lot going on here underneath the surface. It is the simplest and yet most worthy of a gigantic deep dive podcast uh, movie that may exist. And I'm excited to get into this with you because I think that Laurie Strode is one of the greatest horror characters of all time. And I'm very excited to talk about her and her amazing genes. And I'm also excited to ask you your opinion that can a movie be so good that it actually screws up the form for everybody else? Because this movie, the takeaways might have given us some of the worst schlockiest horror that we got. But we needed this. But can you be too good and then create a wave of too bad? I don't know. We'll get into all of this. But first, let's set the tone and unspool it. Okay, Amy, picture this. The year is 1978. Over 900 members of the People's Church at Jonestown 
perish after being convinced by Jim Jones to drink the Kool-Aid. And by the way, if you've never seen a show called Scare Tactics, um, they actually recreate the Kool-Aid drinking prank. And every time you think like, oh my gosh, how could people have done this? A they make a guy drink the Kool-Aid in a scare tactics. And you're like, wow, he just wanted to fit in, even though people were dying around him. It was one of the most crazy psychological experiments. I love scare tactics. Anyway, just to say, if you ever think like, how could they have drank the Kool-Aid? Scare tactics proves that you could have. Uh, in the UK, the first human to successfully be conceived through IVF is born. The Vatican cycles through an unprecedented no- the Vatican cycles through an unprecedented number of popes, three in three months, which I think is the premise of The Godfather 3. Wow, that and new pope smell really coming from the roof <laughs> of the Vatican. Yeah, get that smell. I get that in the candle form. And in the States, the son of Sam Killer, David Berkowitz, is sentenced to 25 years to life, which seems small. 25 years only? Should have gotten a little <laughs> bit more than that. Uh, anyway, uh, the hot unspooled films include Grease. Superman, the deer hunter, and now Halloween. Amy, I know you are a resident Halloween expert. So one last time, tell us who's in it, who made it, and what was on the radio. Oh, for the last time? I mean, I hope not. (laughs) That means I'm going to be dead. Um, Halloween. (laughs) It is directed by John Carpenter and written by John Carpenter and his producer and then-girlfriend Deborah Hill. Halloween has the simplest plot, I think, of any movie we have ever done on this show. On Halloween 1963, a boy named Michael Myers stabs his sister Judith to death. He's locked away in an asylum under the care of Dr. Loomis, played by Donald Pleasance, a uh, dubious doctor, I would say, until Michael is old enough to stand trial. But the day before he can stand trial, on Halloween 1978, Michael escapes. He heads back to his hometown of Haddonfield to kill again. And his targets wind up being three teenage female friends. Two of them die. Nancy Kyes as Annie, PJ Souls as Linda, uh, also Linda's boyfriend, Bob. But one has lived on and on and on and on and on. And that is, of course, Jamie Lee Curtis in her first ever major film role as Laurie Strode. We also have to applaud here Nick Castle, his uh, relentless slow walk as Michael Myers, or rather the shape as Carpenter and Hill called him in the script, helped turn that character into one of these major classic symbols of horror that is right up there with Frankenstein. Take a listen. Halloween night. A small American town. 15 years ago. Eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Halloween was released right on top of when it was set, October 25th, 1978. And this very, very small independent $300,000 film made did gangbuster numbers. I mean, we're talking like over $70 million around the world when it was released, which I ran the numbers on that. That is over 233 times the initial investment, uh, making Halloween the most profitable independent movie of its time. And when that money got in there, it made Halloween the movie that created a legion of imitators and making Halloween, in essence, this granddaddy 
er text for all of the slasher films to follow. I mean, so much that the followers who latched onto these plot points of, you know, virginal final girl who survives turned Halloween into this template, this rule book for horror that has lasted for over a generation. You know, even being folded into the plot of Scream, a movie that we did last year that talks about the rules that Halloween created. So in this pivotal moment in time, what was on the radio? Well, Paul, coincidentally, it is a song about danger. It is a song about danger in the shape of something wild, as it says in the opening line. But that danger, however, is not a murderous man. It is a sexy girl who likes sex. The number one song is Nick Gilder, Hot Child in the City. Oh, good one. of something wild. I was like, oh, the shape. They knew it. They knew it, except we really just call him Michael Myers. So, Amy, you know, watching this movie, you know, for, I don't know, maybe the fifth or sixth time, I was looking at it a little bit more critically. And at first I was thinking, man, this this script, it's it's a little, is there anything really here? Like, it, it felt light to me. And then I realized, like, oh my gosh, that's exactly why this movie is so frightening. Because it is like this idea of like a, a generic suburbia where there is this, this stalker out there just coming to kill and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Like there is, you're not doing anything wrong. You're not doing anything right. And, and even though the rules of horror have been written based on this movie, I think this movie actually just puts forward the idea that like he's coming to kill you. It, it is a, it is more of a stalker movie than it is like a slasher horror movie. And I found it to be way more unnerving than I ever really like really credited it for. It's like the same issue that we have with Shrek. It's like you, you start to be like, Oh, Michael Myers, Michael Myers, Michael Myers. But it's like, no, this is fucking scary. Yeah. I mean, Carpenter's point when he came up with this idea of the shape, was that he wanted to have this figure who represented the idea that like evil is random, that like death is incomprehensible, that things might just come for you and you don't understand why. And Michael Myers can't explain it. He's just rage. And you don't even know this guy. You don't even know he's looking at you. You don't know any of this. You know, he just shows up and he kills you because he can and because you're there and because he's mad and he doesn't like to talk about it. And that that point is so giant and so scary. And it comes out of a bit of like Carpenter's childhood. You know, like Carpenter is a guy who, you know, he moves from the north, from like New York to Bowling Green when he's a little kid. And one of the first things he notices being this kind of outsider in the south is like racism. And he'll, he would talk about like how strange it was that the people around him were like talking openly about racism and being like kind of dehumanizing towards other people. And that like his girlfriend told him once that her grandfather had just like seen a black man crossing the street and like sped up and like ran him over on purpose and then called the cops. It was like, I hit a guy. And they're like, OK. 
and just nothing happened. And he was like, that is evil that I find unfathomable, evil without a purpose. And he wanted to make a figure that kind of tapped into that horror. Like, we're, how is evil so large and so near us? How, how does the street look so quiet? How do these people seem so normal? And yet there is this rot that's taking place in small towns. And so then the, the irony, of course, is in like the sequels of Halloween make these more and more elaborate reasons of why Michael Myers is doing these things. They're related. They're sisters. They're brothers. Oh, he's from an evil spirit. Oh, he's resurrected. Oh, my God. Don't even get me started on like Halloween five and six. But they strip away that point. And you're you're so well, right. That point itself is the scariest thing about this movie. I mean, you and I saw the re-release of Jaws recently and Jaws is the same idea, right? Like Jaws is this shark, just being a shark. By the time we get to Jaws 4, the shark is making vacation plans to go to like the Bahamas to follow the family. It's like, wait, you're following the family and you're not even the actual Jaws because they killed the, like you're related. Are you related to Jaws? I don't even know. You know, like. I I mean, no hate on Jaws 4, which is so fun. I mean, Michael King's best performance. Uh, (laughs) But 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 you're right. But you're right. Because then if, if Jaws is just attacking a family, then you're like, oh, I don't have to worry that much about it because I'm not Brody. And if I don't vacation anywhere near a Brody, then I'm totally cool. But yeah. but if 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 Jaws is just eating anybody at any beach, then then it affects you. Then it like can get more in your nightmares, I think. And I think, you know, going back to that idea that he grew up in the South or was in the South for a period of his life, that's a perfect place for the hidden, like what we see on the outside versus what is going on on the inside, like white picket fences, beautiful houses, right? But it all is covering up this other society, this other level of, you know, the the past, the feelings of the present that they may not say out loud, to according to Carpenter, they're saying them out loud, but this idea that like everything looks beautiful, but the anger and the actions are something that you would maybe equate to a dirty, violent city, right? You know, and it's, and that idea I think is really scary too, like where it looks pristine, where it looks like nothing can happen. And this whole movie yeah, is playing exactly. with you in the beginning. It's like the the peacefulness of Haddonfield is being upset by this. There's something wrong. There's something yeah. off. You know, like we don't know but what it is. It's being upset by one of their own too, mm. which is it's being upset by a local Haddonfield kid. Like the the danger is coming from inside the small town. Because I think right. a lot of horror films. Up until this point, you know, often, not all of them, but most of them kind of focus on this idea of scary things as being monsters beyond your comprehension, you know, like, like Dracula, Frankenstein, werewolves, things that happen to somebody to make them not human. Um, A lot of horror before this takes place in like creepy things and castles and places that don't look so much like suburbia. And then in the 70s, you start to see this real burbling up of horror being something that takes place in your hometown. You know, in part because the 70s was like really the rise of serial killers. And all of a sudden people were afraid in their own houses in a way that they hadn't been. Like the 70s is really where you get this like son of Sam, you know, this rise of just like killers that you don't understand being in your small town and people starting to be afraid in a way that they hadn't felt before. Well, but don't you also feel like there's a rise of this like political conservatism, right, too. It's like we're almost into the 80s where it's like the Reagan era. So the Republicans are coming in, like morals are coming in. We're coming out of like 
you know, we're out of Vietnam, we're out of the 60s, the 70s is this weird middle ground where I think all of a sudden politically our landscape is kind of just becoming a little bit more chaste, right? Like we definitely experienced that in the 80s, whether or not, uh, you know, yes, there's a lot of stuff going on in the 80s that is like off of that. But I think that idea of like, we're politically correct or, you know, we want to make sure like, you know, we, we're we doing things the right way, the American way. And you know, obviously we've talked about Reagan a lot in the last couple of years, you know, like what's Reagan's America? But it was this idea that, you know, this is a moment in our society where I think fear sometimes also brings or allows like more structure and order, right? And like, this is a moment where how can you control this uh, thing that has no, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't play by the rules, right? We want, we're starting to get people to line up in the rules a little bit. Well, I always, I always imagine the late seventies as like this intense hangover for Mm -hmm. the country, you know, like there was the fighting spirit and the hope and the optimism of the late 60s, which were so turbulent. But there was like a, a, a an idea that things could get better. And then everybody gets more cynical. And then everybody just starts partying all the time and disco and doing cocaine. And then now they're like, they're having that hangover right before you wake up in the morning. And Reagan is like, we're just going to drink vegetable juice and everything will be fine. I promise. And you're like, oh, yeah, sure. I believe in you. We're going to get healthy, whatever that is. But I don't think you can ever get healthy until you look at what made you freak out? What made you act this way? And I think that's so much of what's happening to Carpenter under the shadows of this movie. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Carpenter, I think, is interesting. He's like a horror film director who doesn't come from that template of... I was a weirdo in school and I was the outcast and I was the loner. And like, I was the kid scribbling monsters in the back of my book. He was the kid scribbling monsters. Like he made his own comic books all the time when he was little, but he was also a really popular kid who was like class president and got along with most people and was kind of a jock. Like he's, he's like an all, he seems like an all American well-rounded kid when he's a high schooler. Like he's in a band, he's cool. He wears his mom's kimonos and he's also class president. Like he's kind of a kid who can get away with anything. And I think in that floater state, he would have people trust him with stuff, you know, that was so fucked up to his head. Like people would like his friends in high school would be like, oh, yeah, sometimes on the weekend I go to the black part of town and I just shoot guns at people's porches. I think it's really funny. And he's like, what? And he just absorbs these things, these people who are acting like his friends and telling him absurdities, just absolute monstrous absurdities that that scare him. And he's like, he becomes really fascinated in this idea of like, 
how are humans so inhuman? Or what is the line between like human and inhuman? And I think that makes it really interesting that the face of the monster he picks to represent this is just the face of some white dude. It's just the face of Kirk, of, of Captain Kirk. It's just the face of William Shatner. It's not a creepy clown. It's just a human man's face. And that's like the scariest thing. Well, I think that that mask works in a couple different ways because it's featureless in a way, right? Like it's just kind of this image of a man's face, but you can't connect to it. Like there's nothing there. Like Freddy Krueger, you can connect to, there's personality to it. This is, it, it, it's like the equivalent of like a white sheet, like a ghost, you know, there's nothing you can even really see there. And yeah, the way they describe it was just like the pale features of a human face, dot, 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 whatever that means was like his like note about it. Right. It's a human, but not human, like a face, but not a face. You can't tell whether or not he's taking joy in the killing, if he is hurt, if he is sad or happy. Like you could make your own judgment. But I think one of the coolest moments in the film happens in the beginning when um, he, when Michael is still a boy. Like you see through the the mask, you know, it's one of the few times you get that perspective of, you know, his eyes through the mask. And as he goes to stab his sister, you don't stay on the body or the knife going into the body. The eyes just kind of go up into the sky. And I thought that was like one of the most terrifying images to be like, I'm stabbing at this thing. I'm not even looking at it. Like he's so disconnected from the killing. And that is something, and you don't really get into it. And Loomis does an okay job of, of making it vague, but it's like, he is, I don't, I don't think that there's any joy in it, which it makes it even more confounding. It's, it's just sort of like uh, a toy with yeah. batteries. It's going to keep on ramming at that wall until you pick it up and turn it in a different direction. And it's going to go to the other wall and ram it to that wall. You know, it's like, there's no, it's, there's no off. It's, and I think that that to me, you know, that's where Michael Myers has become, in my opinion, lame because you're right. You've given him too much. Like, okay, he's going to come back. He's going to go over here. He's got this plan. He's rigged this up, you know, and I like it much more when it's sort of like he's just reacting. It's like, well, now I must kill you. Like that's, I, like it wasn't premeditated, but now yeah. you're here. I have to kill you. I mean, you can't logic him. That's what makes it, you can't convince him not to kill you. You can't yes. talk him out of it. There's no weak spot. There's no nothing. And you, you don't, yeah, it's and, yeah, and you can't and, even see it in his eyes or anything. Like, so you can't connect yeah. even as a victim, you can't connect. Like what is going on? I don't even know. Are you, you know, it's like, that's unnerving. Yeah. He's not even saying like trick or treat as he stabs you, mm -hmm. where you can at least as you're dying, be like, well, he's got a terrible sense of humor and yeah. he's not funny at all. Like you do, you can't get anything up on this guy. And what I love about that intro, we should really drill into that for a second. Like, first off the point that you're making that like, we might never understand Michael, but the creepy thing the camera does is it keeps putting us literally inside his head. You know, so we're with him being this voyeur. Like it, you, you're forced by the camera to not to like emotionally maybe identify with this killer, but maybe a little bit to be like, where's he going? What's he gonna do? What what am I interested in? What am I looking at? Like it, making these sounds even in the camera, the kind of like liven up what you're seeing. Like you're Michael, you're creeping around, you're in his POV outside the house in this tracking shot that opens the film that is just 
amazing. Amazing, by the way. I mean, and we should let here. This is actually Deborah talking even a little bit about how they pulled that tracking shot off. We took it from Touch of Evil, um, one of our favorite Orson Welles films. We set up so that we would start in the front of the house and we would actually go all the way through, creep in the window, see them kissing, go through the back of the house, open up the drawer, take out the knife. And by the way, those were my hands. And then we would go in through the living room and up the steps and into the bedroom. And while we were up there shooting that scene, um, downstairs, all the electricians and grips were running around crazy trying to reset the lights for when we turned around and came back through the house. I mean, tracking shots like this, it almost never been seen at like the intro of a movie. Like one of the only ones that rates up here with this is the Orson Welles Touch of Evil, which has this, this amazing opening crane shot that is also like as mesmerizing and stars you know, coincidentally, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's mom, that's Janet Lee film, amazing intro shot, but like you're inside him and you're getting kind of these like tingling reactions to the thing that he's seeing. Like he looks upstairs at the window where his sister is. And when she turns off the lights, the music is like, she turned off the lights. And you feel that kind of thrill. And it's like, it's, it's almost terrifying to be inside this person that you know is going to do something awful and you're being made to identify with him so much, even though you can't, you know, on some level, you're being put inside his mask and looking through his eye holes and you couldn't be more inside his viewpoint if they tried. And, and does that make you feel at all? Creepy, voyeuristic, like you're the stalker too. Like you're kind of, you're kind of implicit. You're like going along with him and being like, I'll watch this girl get stabbed. The fact that it's this long tracking shot, which was like three reels of film and there's three little cuts, you know, that are made in it, which is, you know, just beautifully done. But there is something so interesting because it's the same feeling you get in rubbernecking at a traffic accident. Like you're watching and like because the tracking shot gives it pace you can't stop it from happening. It, it doesn't feel like a movie. It feels like, oh my God, I'm, I'm watching, like, what do I do? Like, not that you're going to jump up. It's not like the uh, birth of film. You're like, oh, is there a train in here? But it's like, but that idea that I think it keeps you, it it doesn't let you catch your breath. Yeah, because a cut bef- would let you check out a little bit and be like, oh, it's a movie, but no Before cut. you know it, you're, you've already watched a brutal murder by a child, by a six-year-old child. I mean, that's the other thing too about this movie is like, is a ch- like I mean Chucky, Annabelle, those are dolls. We have not really, you know, and I'm sure horror fans out there are gonna tell me I'm wrong, but like oh, yeah, in nineteen 19- the bad seed, but sure. like yeah. Nineteen seventy-eight to see a six-year-old who seemingly is a normal looking child, essentially just mad that his sister's not giving him attention. I mean, that's that's really I mean, or at least that's all we have to go on in the very beginning that he goes and murders his sister. It's not like he's puritanical. We don't think he's like, oh, you shouldn't be having sex. It's like it's just almost like you're not paying attention to me. And this is how I'm going to get your attention, you know, and it's and there's something childlike about Michael Myers the entire time. Uh, and we were talking about it before, like that. The ability to not stop. That's very childlike. I'm just going to keep on hitting this yeah. thing, doing this I'm thing, keep play with me. Kicking your seat, kicking yeah. your seat, kicking your seat. Yeah. And also, can we talk about his poor little sister, Judith, for a second? Because like, she's supposed to be 15. 
mm-hmm. know, which is very young. She doesn't really read 15. The actress doesn't read 15. No, not at all. But, but the character's the, supposed to be 15. But that's like the early 80s, uh, late 70s, where every 12-year-old looked about 37. I think it's like the <laughs> hair and the frills or something. Yeah, exactly. But like, I mean, she's on the couch with her boyfriend. They're making out. They go upstairs. By the time her younger brother walks to the front, then walks to the back, gets his knife, goes up the stairs. Not even, he doesn't even go up the stairs yet. He's just in the living room. Her boyfriend is like, cool, thanks, babe. I'm done putting on my pants, getting out the door. I mean, that's like, A, the quickest bone in history. It's almost so quick, it's kind of mean. Like when he's like, she's like, will you call me? He's like, yeah, yeah. Like that guy's not even going to call you. What a jerk. What a jerk. (laughs) And he just gets... He walks away and never gets stabbed. We never see that guy again. Yeah, and that, um, that should be the person maybe getting stabbed. <laughs> yeah, you hurt my sister. Yeah, but, uh, you got, yeah. Like that scene, that opening is like the microcosm of the entire movie. Safe house, nothing's going to go wrong. It looks like a typical like teen make out. Like there's nothing wrong. It's the perfect house. And then once, I mean, it starts in the very beginning, the score. The score of the movie, you know, even when you see that glowing pumpkin, the score does more work in this movie than I think anyone in the film, because it also keeps you in this, this, um, baited breath, like, oh, what's good? Like it, it, it's, it's foreboding like a Bernard Herrmann score, you know, but it's throughout the entire movie. Like you feel that in Psycho in that one moment where he rips open the curtain and you have the stabbing, but this, that is kind of like the underscore of the majority of the movie is that, that kind of tension. And of course that's John Carpenter. I mean, John Carpenter composed and did this. And if if you have not treated yourself to like John Carpenter's music CDs, get in on it. Cause they're great. It's like scores for films that he never wrote. Uh, he, it, it, it's awesome. Yeah. His music is great. And part of why his music is so good is like his dad was a violin teacher. His dad mm. like was a professor of musicology. So his dad, when he was young, was like teaching him like interesting rhythm stuff that kind of sets your teeth on edge. Like the Halloween score, the da, 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 da. That's like, the rhythm is like five, four, which is a really unusual one. The only film that actually uses that that's also popular is um, the Mission Impossible theme. But oh, it's wow. like kind of an intent, it's an attention getting pace where you can't really zone out on it. And the way that he puts the music together what I love about it is how closely he ties the sounds of the score to what you're watching to where like, there's a certain music that you hear every time you're waiting for something awful to happen. You know, we're like, where Lori is just walking around in her neighborhood and you're watching Michael watch her. And you're sometimes inside Michael watching him watch her or you're over Michael's shoulder watching her watch, watching him watch her. But you're just listening and listening and listening to this thing. And it, it sort of builds this tension as to what's going on. And then he also will sometimes use the music to just tell us what Michael is doing. You know, like when Michael is getting stabbed, but then like climbing to his feet behind Laurie Strode, he uses music for that to say like, look at Michael, you're hearing him sit up. The music is Michael. And then sometimes he just uses music in like the craziest way. I think like my favorite sound effect is the first time we see adult Michael go on the attack and he, like Loomis and the nurse are driving up to the hospital to drug him very heavily with Thorazine. We're getting our first kind of clue that Loomis, you know, is not the nicest guy. His other nurse is like, you keep calling him it. Are there any special instructions? 
just try to understand what we're dealing with here. Don't underestimate it. Don't you think we could refer to it as him? If you say so. The compassion's overwhelming, Doctor. But then they pull up and you hear Michael jump on the roof of the car and it is the goofiest sound, but I also just love it. I mean, imagine I love if that. every time yes. you moved, imagine if every time you, it's like, it's almost like he's got synthesizers attached to his shoes. He's just like making music happen. <laughs> but I think that that's like the way that John Carpenter, I've seen like images of him with his like setup. And I know J.J. Abrams did that a lot too, like composed his own music. And I think it, you know, you don't have to translate what you want, right? You you get to basically, you know, it's it's an extension of as a director, I think it's an extension of you directing. Like you do, but you don't have to say, like, I want it to sound like this, get it this. Like he knows how he wants it. So it's it's a one-to-one. And I think there's great, obviously, amazing composers who can give you a sound that you never got. But I, I love that when Carpenter composes themes for his own stuff. It just makes the movie feel like a John Carpenter movie. Now, I think that people didn't know what a John Carpenter movie was in 1978, although he was trying to get them to because he comes in to this movie basically as like a a guy who made two small movies. He's like, you're going to pay me $10,000 to write, produce, direct, and score the film, which yeah, was for $10, a high $10,000. Yeah, he like, he's like the guy running the payroll too. He's the guy stocking the coolers with soda. He does everything for his $10,000. And as his trade-off, he's like, okay, but we're calling this John Carpenter's Halloween. Put and my by money the way, by putting my name in the title. And, and and they go, okay, you can get that as long as the budget doesn't go over $300,000. But that moment, that establishes a brand. And, you know, obviously if this fails, it doesn't. But from here on in, we expect certain things from a John Carpenter movie. And that's like, sonically we do, visually we do. And I think there is this idea of not sadistic but like this idea of killing or terror happening to people who don't necessarily deserve it and i think we've gone so far in horror at points to justify reasons you know like the idea of the final girl this idea like oh the virginal girl doesn't get killed i don't think that that was John Carpenter's intent. I mean, you obviously know a lot more. I think that there's a repressed sexuality, but I don't think you would ever want to be responsible for saying like, oh no, uh, only quote unquote, like bad girls get killed. Like, you know, but because Lori is doing her job and he's still coming after her. I mean, like she's doing everything right. It's not like, um, you know, and she's violent with him. And, you know, it's interesting because I was thinking about it from the political point of view and it's like, oh, she stabs him with a coat hanger. Is that something that's like, is that like, uh, you know, abortion? Is that like a, a, a take on abortion? You know, I, I think at a certain point, John Carpenter said he just chose objects to be phallic. So it could kind of be her repressed sexuality. But I do like looking at it in a way of like, you know, well, what are these what are these objects? What do they represent? Are, you know, are they, you know, this idea that well, she's in the closet. All, they're all domestic is what right. I like about it. It's a hanger. It's a knitting needle. It's a kitchen knife. She's fighting back, not with like chainsaws and guns. She's fighting back with like things that are associated with being like a, a, a you know, stereotypical like woman in your household, you know, to have a knitting needle and use it as your weapon, to have a coat hanger. Like it's, it's, it feels like, you know, suburban weapons 
which is what I like about it. I, I like that too. I just like the idea. I mean, there is something also about Laurie Strode, this, this character that like whether or not it's repressed sexually, because I think that that kind of dilutes it. It's, it's this idea of like, what would you do when your life is on the line? And I think that that like, again, we found so many ways to make people trip over a stump in the forest or, you know, fall down or whatever it is, you know, we, we like horrors become, or at least this movie started tropes that I don't think were ever meant to be tropes, right? Like she's fighting back violently. Uh, I think that David Gordon Green has done a really good job of that in in his Halloween trilogy of just like, like you're fighting for your life. Like I think that we've like uh, it's been in the '80s for a while. It just sort of seemed like people like, all right, you got me. I'm dead. Like it just you know like once I tripped, it's time to stab me to death. You know, and it's and she just does not give up. She really, really you know, takes them to task and it's bloody and it's messy. And, you know, I, I still don't understand, you know, what the damage of that fight would have had to Michael Myers. He gets like a knitting needle in his side of his brain. <laughs> it feels like. Well, yeah. I mean, the only advantage that Lori has over her friends is just that she knows it's, he's coming. Right. It's just, she gets the tiniest little bit of a heads up. Her friends never do otherwise, you know, like Annie is just straight up like strangled and stabbed in the in her car. She gets into her car. She's all happy. She thinks she's going to go see her boyfriend. She's singing a song that I'm sure is stuck in your head all the time about Paul and how much she adores oh, Paul. I loved it. Loved it. But she has absolutely no time to react. You know, she gets in the car. She realizes a little bit like, oh, that's funny. I thought the door was locked, but she doesn't even register it for like a beat. And then she's like, oh, the windows are kind of fogged. And then boom, she's getting attacked and she can't do anything about it. Absolutely. There is no way to fake that. There's a part of this, like the metaphor of this is like, we are comforted by our suburban, you know, everything is safe. Everything is nice, but look past it. Like that's what Lori's constantly doing. She's like, huh, I have a feeling something is weird is going on. And again, going back to like the political moment of the late seventies, like, huh, it, it feels like this is trying to keep me safe, but is it kind of taking away my rights? Is it kind of being a little bit more, uh, you know, we're we're eliminating like the bad morals and we're just we're forcing good morals like it's there's like a little bit of a matrixy nature to it like she's aware more keenly of her yeah. surroundings than everybody else yeah it's not that Lori is more moral or more just no. or a better person or anything compared to her friends like i mean john carpenter for his part was always like I would have given anything to date PJ Souls in high school. I loved PJ Souls's character. Like I would have that like that's my dream girl. It's just that Lori is more aware of her surroundings. You know, Lori is the person who's like, "Wait, I keep seeing this guy." You know, like the, it, there's that moment where like she and her friends are driving home and they see that creepy car and her friends are really quick to write it off as like, "Oh, we know that guy." You know, and they just start like heckling him, you know. Hey jerk. Speed kills. But then, like, a couple blocks later, 
Lori sees Michael again, and she's just the one who's like, no, it's that guy. Pay attention. Yeah. Oh, look. Look where? Behind the bush. I don't see anything. The guy who drove by so fast, that one you yelled at? Oh, subtle, isn't he? And, you know, we even see in the reaction to that, like, Lori's not even the one who's going to be the most aggressive. It's like Annie that walks up to the bush and is like, hey, creep, go away. And she's like, Annie is the one who would be more proactive fighting. It's just she doesn't get a chance to. She never she never has a chance to. She doesn't she doesn't have that little moment of warning. And the same thing with PJ Souls's character. It's just like she thinks that's her boyfriend under a sheet. And by the time that she realizes it isn't, she can't do anything. She can't get away. She can't run. She's just trapped. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I mean, for Jamie Lee Curtis... Like her whole perspective on this is that she became this character who was known as like this girl who's kind of more tomboyish looking, who doesn't take her shirt off. She survives. So therefore, this is about, you know, like sex and virginity and girls who aren't too girly and blah, blah, blah. And like, that's what makes you a good person. And it's like the girls who have sex who die. I mean, a couple of things happen, like right when this movie comes out, which is like, it's such a hit that then Jamie Lee Curtis is put in a lot of horror films and she's put in a lot of horror films mostly because nobody will put her in any other kind of a film. Like nobody knows what to do with Jamie Lee Curtis because she doesn't look like you know, the typical like big blonde haired actress everybody's looking for at this time period. So she's really only getting offers to do more horror films and she keeps doing horror films and people want to put her in horror films because they're hoping to make the next Halloween. But because it's Jamie Lee Curtis, nobody is treating this character like a bimbo, kind of in Jamie's opinion, because nobody thinks she's hot enough to take off her shirt. And she's like, nobody asks me to take off my shirt. Everybody thinks I'm kind of goofy looking. She was really self-conscious at the time because she felt like her teeth were kind of gray and crooked. And she was self-conscious because like she felt like her parents were two of the most beautiful people on earth. Her parents are, of course, like Janet Lee and Tony Curtis, who we've talked about like in our Spartacus episode. And she always grew up feeling so self-conscious that they were considered these great beauties. And she was, her early interviews are like really kind of blunt and like, she's like, nobody thinks I'm hot. Nobody wants me to take off my shirt. And then it became this whole thing that virgins are good. And she's like, that's so weird to me. It's just nobody, nobody wanted to sexualize me because they didn't think I was sexy. It's so interesting. And I mean, and that's what is so interesting about that new Halloween uh, ends is that she's completely topless uh, throughout the entire film. So she finally does <laughs> get that Don't back. Don't say yeah. that to me. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> well, I mean, but that's the line in Scream, right? She she didn't show her tits until she went legits. Right, yeah. Yeah, and she, like, I love her interviews from this time period because everybody was- it trading was at, places? 
I get. Yeah, I think so. Everybody's wow. asking her over and over again at this time period, like, aren't you in these exploitation films? Don't you feel like you're exploiting yourself? Blah, 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 blah. And she's like, I'm accused of being a shameful B actress, exploiting women by promoting violence against women. I've had every woman's group in the country after me, but I never took my clothes off, never swore. I was always the girl next door. And now that I've taken my clothes off in two films, I'm considered a legitimate actress. And she's like, I find this so interesting. These reactions that people have to like just women in general. Well, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis is such an interesting anomaly in this world, right? Because we're, again, talking about 80s horror, 70s horror. Uh, she survives not only the killer, but she survives her career. Like we talked about how, you know, the exorcist, like Linda Blair really couldn't find a career yeah. after that movie. You know, they get so connected to a part. And there's something really interesting, I Small think. Small detail, by the way, about that. The, yeah. When Jamie Lee Curtis was a kid, they asked her if she wanted to audition for that part. And her mom said no. Her mom was like, we don't want you in a horror film this young. I have had my whole Smart. life defined by being in Psycho. I don't want this to happen to you. And and look, she definitely does a lot of horror. Fog, Prom Night, Terror Train, you know, Halloween too, uh, you know, then, and then, you know, it's 1983 where she does trading places. And then, you know, I think at, you know, at a certain point it's like, like things start to come into play, but I think in a weird way, we like her character more. Like she does bring a personality to it a little bit. Like I'm trying to figure out what it was that people wanted to see her again. Right. Because I think it is like this disposable nature of a guy who's the next person we're going to put in a horror movie. Who's the next? What's the next thing? And maybe because and I, I think that she looks beautiful in this movie. I don't I'm not saying that I'm just going to go off of the theory that she has, which is like no one wants to see my tits. Uh, I'm I'm not like hot enough to be yeah. like the hot girl. Which, by the is way, it, is like a running thing of hers forever. Like her yearbook quote when she graduated high school just a couple years before this, because she's a legit teenager when she makes this movie. Her yearbook quote is, quote, Weirdness is a virtue that only some can project successfully. My bosoms aren't big, but they're mine. It's like she is very aware of how she's being looked at, even as a kid. I mean, but maybe that's the best thing for her in a way, because you are, you know, based on our conversation about Jennifer's body, maybe I'm reading too much into this. Like, we're not just about her body. She's not just a hot girl. She is somebody that we actually respect Maybe because she did keep her clothes on. And again, I don't want to get into like if that's something to respect or disrespect. But I think in that time frame, that tease of it or that, oh, we haven't seen that. Maybe we will or maybe we won't. Like she I think that her personality was able to come out more. Not that Linda Blair showed her, you know, her breasts. And I, I'm just trying to figure out what it is. Why in a time where really we're just turning over. If you look at those, you know, Jason and Freddie movies like that, that is like. You look at the cast list, right? I've never heard of these people. They they kind of just come and go. I mean, with the exceptions of like Johnny Depp, Jamie Lee Curtis, yeah. you know, it's like, but Johnny Depp, it's like, okay, sure. Yeah. And you would have never thought he'd be the breakout because he's, yeah. yeah, not not in that movie. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is that Laurie Strode and the way Jamie plays her, like hey, Jamie Lee Curtis is amazing as Laurie Strode, to be honest. Like it is, it is just the most naturalistic performance in a horror movie 
I, I think of anything we've really covered, it is like completely naturalistic. Like you feel like you actually know Laurie Strode. She talks like a normal teenager. She gets goofy a little bit like a normal teenager, but she feels so real. And by the way, can we it, just credit Deborah Hill for that? Deborah Hill, the uh, who wrote this movie with uh, John Carpenter. Deborah Hill really is responsible for all the 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 female dialogue in the film like you know and and from what i've heard like john carpenter did a lot more of the loomis stuff but you know deborah hill really captured these voices or made these characters i think pop and make all of them really work well yeah for sure deborah hill is like totally just this unsung hero of halloween who i think she's finally getting sung out more and more and more and more and more like deborah hill she's 27 when they make this movie you know john carpenter is 29 they've been together a couple years um it, she writes the entire first draft of this movie. Like she was a babysitter. It was really important to her that this feel like a movie about real babysitters where they're friends with each other, where they're goofy. Haddonfield is the name of Deborah's hometown. You know, she she puts that town on the map. Like She's like, I'm from Haddonfield, New Jersey. She's from New Jersey. So we're going to use it there. Um, and she, of course, like part of her dynamic is like she shows up on set. She's 27. She's blonde. She wears like big high cork heels, you know. Everybody starts grumbling immediately, like, I can't believe the director's girlfriend is our producer. What's that about? Like, John Carpenter had to kind of had that fight with the producer, with, like, Erwin Yablins and stuff. Like, she's going to be our producer. And he's like, this 27-year-old blonde, what are you talking about? But all that grumbling stops really fast when people realize that Deborah Hill is good and she's smart and she's, like, completely on top of this movie. And, yeah, this is her real note, is, like... She wants Jamie Lee Curtis to feel like a real person. She wants their friendship to feel like a real friendship. She, you know, she takes Jamie Lee Curtis shopping to buy the clothes for Laurie Strode. Like they don't have some costume designer go and pick out a wardrobe. She and Jamie Lee Curtis go to JCPenney with 200 bucks and they buy the clothes that like an ordinary girl at that time might own. And by and, the way, they're using her own clothes too, right? I mean, because like a lot of it was to save money on this movie. If you're saying oh, John yeah. Carpenter's filling soda, you know, buckets up, like they're also wearing some of their own clothes. Oh yeah. People are wearing, like they're driving their own cars. They're like, yeah, they, uh, they're using a lot of their own stuff. A lot of it's like their own furniture that's being used to populate the houses. And, you know, Deborah Hill kind of even has this ear for like how girls even talk about clothes, which you don't get to see in the final cut of Halloween, but you do get to see it in like the TV version of Halloween where there's some extra scenes where it's just like. Which he shot during Halloween too, right? I didn't know that. I don't know about that. Those aren't deleted scenes from the first film. Those are scenes that John Carpenter shot on the second film to make it fill in time. So oh, gotcha. I love that idea. It, it, it's kind of like a rare, a rare opportunity to not have to put like your worst stuff forward. It's not like, oh, we cut this out. But he is kind of also adding stuff that doesn't need to be there, but at least knowing I'm adding this for that reason. It, it just there's something very interesting and very bizarre about it. But yeah, so that that uh, all those extra scenes, I think it's a, eleven minutes, were all shot during the second film. Like, there's all these added scenes of like Linda and Annie, you know. Trying to get like Lori to loan them one of their blouses, you know, just like really pressuring her to get one of their blouses. Little joke. <laughs> so what do you want? Oh, Lori, I totally have nothing to wear tonight. I was kind of hoping that uh, you'd lend me that silk blouse that you got on your birthday. I haven't even worn it yet. I know, but I promise I won't spill anything on it or tear it or, or rip it or do any of those things. Lori, stop worrying. It was Steve Todd. Uh, 
And part of me honestly feels like these scenes, Linda and Annie, they can be really negative to to Lori sometimes. They tease her so much about being like asexual. You know, they kind of are like, you're interested in boys. What are you talking about? Like there's that scene where they're driving in the car and Annie's kind of going hard on Lori when Lori admits she has a crush on a guy named Ben. You know, you could ask somebody. Well, I could. Sure you could. All you have to do is go up to somebody and say, you want to go to the dance? You could do that. I couldn't. Well, you could ask Dick Baxter. He'd go out with you. <laughs> I'd rather go out with Ben Tramer. Ben Tramer? I knew it! <laughs> So you do think about things like that, huh, Lori? <laughs> Shut up. He's cute. Pantorama. <laughs> There's something about those scenes where it's like, I believe that Lori genuinely loves her friends and is like concerned about them and wants to make sure they're okay and that they know each other. But it's funny that their basic form of communication is just constantly bagging on Lori. They're just constantly making fun of Lori in this film. And I wonder if Lori ever gets annoyed or maybe it's part of a Jennifer's body dynamic. Like she's the nerdy friend and they're always just like, here's how you flirt with boys. Get with it already. Blah, 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 blah. But I think that that's always like this idea that there's, you know, there, there are always some, like there is a hierarchy and what makes her character so interesting. And I think what we need to establish is that she really is doing a good job. Like she rescues the kids. She saves the kids. You know, without her, there's no real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And we don't think about Boo. that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that it's That is like, a deep, deep cut joke, by the way, because Lindsay Wallace, if you didn't know, was played by Kyle Richards, who is a housewife. Yes. And uh, I just think that there is something about... You have to set her up as being responsible, being a little bit different. It doesn't mean that the, her friends are like mean or oversexed or don't care, but you need the responsible one because in, in a weird way, it it's the reason why she gets involved with Michael Myers, you know, just from the get go. It's like, you know, she is interested. She's like trying to figure out what's going on. She does investigate. Like she is always thinking a little bit more. And I think that that like that mindset like in a movie with not much plot. And surprisingly, it takes a long time for like Michael to reappear. And that's what I think I was really surprised by. I'm like, you forget like that. Um, I feel like it's like 35 minutes, like, you know, uh, you know, from the, the open to, to the, you know, until the, the night, you know, it's like, that's a, a long time of just in the town, living in the town. And it's not even like doing a layout of the town. So we feel like, oh, we'll know this for the final act when they run through the hardware store and they go over the thing. It's like, no, 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 it's just going to be this one house. But they are just yeah. slowly like giving you every detail. Like he got a mask. He got like, we're seeing how the character is being <laughs> built, but we're not really seeing him. It's like, it's just building this uneasiness. And so when that final reveal kind of comes or the first reveal, I should say of it, you know, I think the payoff is better, but it, it's so much more patient than it's so many. I feel like that that's a five to 10 minute segment in a modern horror film, or at least uh, the ripoff clones of these. Well, I mean, OK, a couple of things on that. Like one, I think it's very funny that they say that Michael Myers gets his mask by like robbing the hardware store where he takes oh, yeah. like what ropes and knife 
and then this mask, which means in this world of Haddonfield, that's just a normal mask that you could yes. buy at a store, which makes me really just laugh and be like, well, who do the rest of the kids think that is? Does anybody else buy that mask? Is that like some fictional well, I mean, you want, TV face? Who is that mask? You what, want that's a mask to see, mask then. <laughs> you want some, you want to see somebody else running around in that mask. I think yeah. like that would have been a great thing. I don't know if they did that in the sequel, but it's like, well, I guess they couldn't because after that, but, uh, but there is that idea that also the hardware store is also like selling some masks on the side. It's like, all right, yeah, yeah. You know, I'll get a couple of fucking masks, but it also speaks to the hardware store. You know, the owners is like, I'm trying to keep topical. God damn it. Uh, get these kids in here. They buy a fucking costume from me. Uh, yeah, that one seems good. Yeah. Like, hey, Jack, don't do you want to get like a Halloween? Like a pun- yeah. <laughs> like those kids did this. Those kids like dug up our graves. They're like blaming everything on teenagers. And the teenagers are the victims here. By the uh, way, can we just talk about that sequence? That, that, that to me is the weirdest sequence. The, the digging up the grave. I understand like the getting to digging up the grave is interesting. Okay. Oh, he went back. But then the placement of the tombstone on the bed, like... Wait, what? Like, like, has he been carrying that around? Has it been in the trunk of the car? Like, whoa, whoa. whoa. It's a cool visual image that makes no fucking sense. Oh, yeah. And part of the weird thing of it, because what he does is like, yeah, he takes the Judith headstone and he puts it on top of the bed where Annie is. And it's like, it would kind of make sense if you're like, oh, I get it. He sees a girl having sex and he puts the tombstone on it after he kills her, which is what he did to his sister. But if that's true, he actually kills the girl that he doesn't see having sex and he uses the tombstone. The girl who has sex, who he kills is PJ Souls. She doesn't get the tombstone. He gives it to Annie, who he's just seen making popcorn and like, you know, doing laundry. So it doesn't, that's just, that's sorry. That, I'm just thinking about that as a way of like kind of tearing apart this like, idea that Michael Myers is punishing people for having sex or associating it so much with his sister, you know. I mean, what I, what like, I kind of I mean, like to think about it is, is like, he's like, okay, well, tonight I'll do some killing um, and I'm going to keep this in this room. Like, it almost, it's like, it's like, it, it like, oh, it just happened to work out like this. Like, it does, <laughs> or I don't know. I'm trying to like, I mean, yeah. it's so beautifully placed. It's like. Well, eight. John Carpenter just said kind of flat out that this about this whole idea of sex is like, I think that's stupid. Michael doesn't know that any of the kids, the victims are going to have sex or have been promiscuous in the past, which, yes, he has no clue about that. But also for me, I think that's one of the things where I where I check out of the movie just a little bit is every time we go away from this idea of Michael as like child ramming toy car into wall into child with a plan, because Putting a tombstone right. in the bed is a plan. And to me, that's goofy. Also, I feel like the part where where Michael wears a sheet and then puts the glasses on over the sheet to go like sneak up on Linda. I don't like that part either so much because I'm like, what? Now he's aware of how he wants to appear for other people. Like he's just been sort of himself in this mask showing up and now he's has a sense of humor. Like, I don't get what he's doing. Like he doesn't seem to be the type who needs to think about sneaking up on people. He might be quiet and be in the shadows, but he doesn't do tricks or ruses. So I have confusion over the sheet thing. And the only way I can make the sheet thing make sense is if I try to really mentally strip all the way back to the beginning of imagining Michael Myers and just thinking, okay, he's just a kid who likes costumes. He puts on the clown mask when he's little. Yes. He puts on this mask now. He just assumes that like I think a sheet is another costume. I think that he's a stunted it, yeah. child though. I think it, like I think that you can- But I don't like, like I, it being a disguise. Do you know, like an extra oh, disguise. Oh, right. Well, right? Like, you see, like to me, 
I see what you're saying. Like, I think because we don't know, there's a playful nature to him. Like, I don't even know if he knows that this stuff is not play. Like, is it? I mean, may, like, like I'll just go down this road. I don't know if I fully believe it, but like, does he know that he really killed his sister? Because when his parents meet him in the front lawn for that tracking shot where no one moves and the film is not frozen. And yeah, it's no like a tableau. It's like one of those yeah. Renaissance paintings of like, you just killed a saint. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay. And it's unnerving to take that long of a tracking shot. But like, there's a part of me where I go, Michael Myers is a disturbed kid and he doesn't know the difference between play and violence. And we don't know his backstory, but like, the reason why he's not going after the boyfriend is because he wants to play with his sister. He's not penalizing his sister for having sex. He's like, oh, now I'm going to surprise you. I'm jumping out of the thing. I'm gonna, now I'm going to stab you. But then he actually does it, right? So I think then seeing the gravestone is maybe recon, like reconciling, like, well, where I'm going to go find my sister again. Oh, she's not yeah. here. You know, it's like- But that forethought is weird. Yeah. I don't know. I think that there's an element of him that, and we don't know that much about him. I'm just going to base it on the first movie you know yeah. what the audience is seeing we don't know anything about him so i i would buy that there's an emotional st- he's stunted in a way and that all this stuff is playing and maybe he's trying to bring back his sister he's like oh i if i kill her is that can i bring her back i like i almost feel like it's if we look at it through the childlike lens it's more disturbing it's like maybe i bring her back maybe i this is my sister is she can i play with her i don't know it doesn't seem like I'm doing this to scare you. It seems more like he's trying to recreate his past. You know, I mean, again, I, not, yeah. you know, I don't know. I like thinking of him as being like impulsive. Right. It's weird. But I mean, like if he was going to pick a girl who looked more like his sister, again, I would go with PJ Souls over, 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 over Annie. But, I, well, you know, the one thing that kind of backs up this point a little bit, though, is the one point that Nick Castle said he felt like he actually got direction from John Carpenter about how to play Michael Myers. Mm -hmm. Because Nick Castle, he's just like buddies with John Carpenter. They're in a band together. They're like just friends. And and Nick Castle comes from like a dancing background. His dad was a dancer. So we put a little bit of like thought into the choreography of how he wanted Michael to walk. But that was all Nick Castle. John Carpenter didn't really have a note on that. But this idea I think that we have of Michael Myers as being relentless and unstoppable comes from the way that Nick Castle made him walk as well. But he said the one moment where John Carpenter was like, I have a note for you on how to do this performance is when Michael Myers uh, stabs Bob in the kitchen and he like, you know, puts him into the cab- into the cabinet with the butcher knife. Right. And then when he's dangling from the wall on the butcher knife and dead, there's that moment where Michael Myers looks at him and then tilts his head like he's the RCA dog, you know, like, oh, oh yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. His master's stabbing. And you see him look at his work and it's really him looking at his work. Oh, I did that. And it's almost like he's looking at it kind of with curiosity. Or I I interpret curiosity in there. Like I interpret personality in that head tilt because that head tilt's really all we get about Michael's personality. A moment that's not just stab stab, but reflection. Yeah. And I have no idea what's going through his head, honestly. I like, know. It's like, like it's like, is he dead? Oh, did well, I do that? Or I, I I think it's like this idea, like this character is a mystery, right? We wanna be, we don't if we know the answers, we know too much. And I think it's like all right, so is the gravestone there because he wants to 
uh, honor his first kill? Is the gravestone there just to show us that he acknowledges something? Like we, it's everything's to our own interpretation because the truth is, it's like we want to get to the bottom of these serial killers, all these podcasts. What is going on? What did they say? What did their text messages say? And we want to believe that there's a reason for evil. If we could understand it, maybe we can avoid it. And I think what Michael Myers does at every step of the way in this movie is goes, I don't know. I don't know. Is he immature? Is he super violent? Is he playing? Is he what we, or is he just a killing machine? And I think the idea of like unexplainable is scarier and things that don't make sense. Like we try so hard to make things make sense that the scariest thing is just never knowing. We will never know because they're gone. Like, you know, they're, they're, they are gone. Like when you see a mass suicide, like we talked about Jonestown, you know, we understand certain things about that, but we don't fully understand what happened, you know? And it's like, I mean, you, we, we understand a version of events, but you know, the people over there all are dead. Like that, those are the first person accounts, right? Like, and I think that we, we need to rationalize. So the long and short of it is, is like the, why does he do anything? We will never know. And it can only be open to our interpretation. But I do think at one point, the only thing that we know about him is there's some version of arrested development, whether that is through drugs or being in the system, not being cared for. Like he is not grown. And I don't know. They are, I, yeah. I, I don't know if that's answering the question, but I just, I think what I'm realizing in this conversation is like, fuck if I know. Like, and I think that that makes it, and I think that that's a great thing to have. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. And it, and it makes it scarier. I mean, I feel like if you're going to put a knife to my neck or threaten my German shepherd or the many things that Michael does in this movie or eat a dog, which I'm also just like, wait, what? When does eating a dog come into play? Remember like when they show up at his old house for the first time and it's like Loomis and the sheriff and there's a dead dog inside and he's like, oh, they've been eating the dog. I'm always like, what? Michael just came from an asylum. He's been fed jello. That man's never had to eat a dog. What are you talking about? Why would he just eat a dog? I I find that really strange. And then honestly, the only way I could rationalize some of those choices in this movie are just like, they made this movie in 20 days. They were in a real rush. They only had like four bags of leaves to shoot this movie in Pasadena in April. They're really busy. They're picking up leaves. They're throwing leaves in front of the camera. They don't have time to think all of this out. I think some scenes are just like, that's creepy. I don't know. It's a tombstone. Really scary. Let's go on. We're not expecting this movie to be the end all and be all of our career the way that right. it winds up becoming. It's sort of like, hey, how do we make this scene a little like, you know, I could even see it being like, it's too dark in the room to show this body. We don't want to turn all the lights on. But if we illuminate the window off the gravestone, we have it in the back of the truck. Let's go do it. Uh, I will say, yeah. you they're know, like, you talk- they're like, they're like running around being like, we can't even buy pumpkins. It's April. Right. We have these like weird like gourds and we're spray painting them orange. That's how desperate we are to make this work. So I don't know why he's got the gravestone i just think it's a really creepy image i will tell you that the uh the house they shot at in pasadena uh 24 7 well not 24 7 i should say 365 you can go in front of that house they have a big pumpkin out front the owners are really lovely and uh, they know people want to come and take pictures in front of the house and uh that that pumpkin is there all year round but imagine living in that house that is so iconic 
Uh, you know that people... I've been inside they... that house. Oh, really? Yeah. I went oh, right. up there once and they let me inside and I interviewed them a little bit about all the people who came inside that house. It is very decorated on the inside and they are the loveliest people. You have they to. They have to. Part of me is like, you know, I don't know if I want to live in Pasadena, but if I could someday get that house, maybe I would. I would like to think I would be as, as well, big hearted as they are because you, you meet those people... They're not creepsters. They don't at all feel like they bought that house because it was the Halloween house, yeah. but it felt like it was thrust upon them. And they're like, we feel a responsibility to the world to be good Halloween ambassadors. Okay, so let me ask you a question about this movie. There's so many great things about it. It's an iconic horror film. But in a weird way, does this fuck up the horror genre? Because I think what he's trying to do is make a scary movie. But then the idea of, and look, we saw it with leather, you know, Leatherface has a mask, but this idea of like the masked killer going after teens, it doesn't feel like that was the impetus to this movie. It feels like, you know, we talked about uh, Freddy Krueger and what was kind of going on there. And like, you know, do we take the wrong things away from this? Do we like start to take all the things that are kind of special and go, okay, what we do need is this. We do need a final girl. We do need a mask and an iconic mask. We do need uh, a theme. We do need like, you know, these things that we now are, that are tropes. I guess my question is, does this pervert the horror form? Uh, Because it was so successful. I think this is the ingredients of what, just what perverted the horror film. I think that the success- So this is the grilled cheese well, sandwich this- Wait, and everyone funny. else can do a thing on top of that, but it's still a grilled cheese sandwich. I actually I actually uh, was going to say that I feel like this is the grilled cheese of horror because Are I you think really? it is. I was. <laughs> oh, I was wow. because I do because I think it is like the most simple, delicious horror film that we have right. we've ever had. It's so simple. It's so perfect. And yet, if you've had bad grilled cheeses, you know that bad grilled cheeses exist. Where I think horror went wrong is the film that came out right after Halloween that tried to copy it, which is Friday the 13th. Like, Friday the 13th looks at Halloween and they're like, teenagers getting stabbed by a dude in a mask. Okay. And like, the ones who have sex die. Okay. And so then they build that into Friday the 13th with Jason, Jason's mom, fine, um, running around and killing these teenagers and not getting... The point of what actually Halloween did so well, which is the Laurie Strode character, which is that you know Laurie and you love Laurie and you care about Laurie. And when like Laurie starts to walk across the street to go look for her friends in the house where you know everybody's getting killed, John's whole point of this film was that you love Laurie by that point so much that he wanted the entire theater just to be screaming at the screen. Do not go in there. Do not go in there. Do not go in there. And that care that element is absolutely missing in the Friday the 13th movies. You don't care at all about these people. Nobody is as resonant as Laurie Strode is, but you have the teenagers and the stabbing and the boobs. And then that movie makes a ton of money too. And so then that becomes the formula. People are like, oh, okay. It's like just this, it's like they just were playing telephone and they missed the point. You know, that's how I think about it is like Halloween is like, hey, really care about your characters and make them feel relatable. Like really feel like this final girl character is somebody that you want to protect. And then Friday the 13th is like, virgins are cool. I guess everybody else can die. And they're like, all right. They only hear that part of it. Right. And then I think you get people who say like subvert the form and then kind of add more to it. And, you know, I think that horror can be 
like sci-fi, you know, and like in this idea where some sci-fi is cool to look at and it's a fun ride and it really doesn't mean anything more than like laser boots and cat people and, you know, spaceships that, you know, look like pocket dogs. But like, uh, but then there's sci-fi that's like, oh, I'm actually, I'm telling something about the world that we live in and I'm using this as a metaphor for that, you know? And I think that, you know, that's what we get excited about now. People who go like, oh, can you do the thing that we like? Can you give us the popcorn movie, but then also give us the morality? Now, here's the thing I thought was really interesting that John Carpenter just said this week. And I know these are these memed things, but I'll bring it up. Like John Carpenter says he doesn't consider A24 horror to be real horror. And on some level, I agree with what his sentiment is because I believe what he's saying is, where is the popcorn horror. Can you still do it? I think that like Get Out is like the popcorn horror. Like it has a message. It's still engaging. If you don't want to be there for the message, it's still super fun. Um, right, he was being asked about like elevated horror, which is such a term that I think a lot of people find very polarizing. Like, right. does that mean all other horror is is low, lesser, we like is is in well, the this trenches? Goes into, but this goes to my Tony Scott argument. Like, forget IP. We need new original ideas. Like, Tony Scott made popcorn movies. Whether, like, they were once a year, they were cool, they were fun, they were new characters, and you were in and out, and whether or not, like, they became, never did a sequel. Uh, and I think that there's something, like workman like when you like i know the form i can give you what you want and it's better than most of the schlock out there and i feel like i can understand like john carpenter's like why can't we just make like a good old-fashioned horror movie without it having to be this other thing like why does right. it have to be elevated why does it have to be arty too can't it just be what it is or and that not, not that's not like the shit on it that's saying like but can't we have that version of it too but also if it was as easy as it sounds even John Carpenter can't duplicate it that much. You know, he does right. the fog after this and that's that's way too complicated. There's way too much lore in there. That move like he he almost like forgets the lesson that he demonstrated right. in this movie. And I, and that's why I really love Jamie Lee Curtis talking about it cuz she really was ground zero for all of this. You know, she's in Halloween and then she's in all of these other knockoff horror films that are lesser than. And she, you know, is she's even telling her own directors like on the set of Prom Night, she's like no, 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 no. Like, you're assuming that everybody watching this movie already likes us in the characters. You're doing too much bizarre stuff, even right up at the top. Like, you're not getting that emotional investment here. And she's seeing how people aren't making it work. You know, she's like, she heard one of her quotes is like, if you have a movie where you don't care about any of the characters and everybody's walking around in unbelievable situations, when the terrible person comes in, you're not going to feel for anybody. And this is like a lesson that she feels like she really learned from Carpenter uh, in in an interesting way, where like one of the notes he gave her was that he wanted Laurie Strode to be vulnerable. Vulnerable was the word he kept hitting. And she had to take a beat to learn what vulnerable meant to her because her first reaction is like, I don't want to be vulnerable. Vulnerable means weak. You know, I don't want to be weak. I want to be like smart and cool and interesting. And he's like, no, vulnerability is not weak. But I think we I think we do confuse those things too much. Like right now we're in that tedious thing of like strong women doing strong things. And I think Laurie Strode is strong and vulnerable in the same breath. Like her vulnerability is part of why I find her so brave that she doesn't seem like this muscle bound person who can, who can solve problems. Like there's that moment where, you know, she realizes Michael's coming. She runs across the street. She's like trying to get, you know, Tommy to wake up. And she's just like, 
you know, he finally opens the door, not really realizing like the boogeyman's finally coming. And she's just like, do as I say. She's like, you have to listen and she has to take control. But she does it in this way that's also like a normal girl, you know, being a babysitter, caring about people. Her like scenes of tenderness are part of her strength. I get like, like I, one of the scenes I think really illustrates this so well is like when Tommy is afraid of the boogeyman a couple minutes before that. And she, in her goofy babysitter voice, makes this promise to Tommy that she's going to take care of him. And I think that is such a beautiful mixing of like vulnerability and strength. Tommy, Halloween night, it's when people play tricks on each other. It's all make believe. I think Richie was just trying to scare you. I saw the boogeyman. I saw him outside. There was nobody outside. There was. What did he look like? The boogeyman. We're not getting anywhere. All right. The boogeyman can only come out on Halloween night, right? Right. While I'm here tonight, I'm not about to let anything happen to you. Promise? Promise. Can we make the jack-o'-lantern now? Let's go. I guess it sounds so simple, but almost nobody does it. I wouldn't say nobody, but I think that sometimes you can get caught up in the dressing, right? It's almost like you can create a great window display, but you are forgetting that you still have to sell clothes, right? Like I could walk away from that window display going, oh my gosh, it was amazing. It was like Christmas morning and there was a jet and there was things and everyone's there. And it's like, no, no, that, the reason why that window display is there is to sell you pajamas, right? And I feel like like sometimes the premise of these things start to hang over the actual enjoyment of these movies. It's like, I don't like less is more. And I know like two episodes ago, I'm saying, well, Hellraiser gave me nothing and I'm mad at it. But it's sort of like, I think that Hellraiser also falls into that idea. It's cool enough that you forget about these other things that we need and you need to have this connection to these people and I'm not going to stop harking on Hellraiser, but... Uh, no, but, the, but did you notice the funny Hellraiser connection between that movie and this one? No. It's so subtle. You're going to be, you're going to groan at me for even pointing it out. But things go wrong in a household when a woman asks a man to get the beer. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think that that's why certain movies pop, certain horror movies pop. And I think those movies that pop creates some sort of vulnerability. It, yes, there are characters, but I think the conjuring pops because we like that duo. You know, I think that there are- I just are, like their clothes in the conjuring. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I think those movies are so boring, but I will just want to buy everything Vera Farmiga's wearing, which is how <laughs> I also feel about Jamie Lee Curtis's pants in this movie. I went to eBay and I was like, are those JCPenney jeans for sale anywhere? Because I love them. Look, I like those pants too, but we are in a time where- the old tropes of horror, they can't even be something that you can make anymore. So you have to make something that's self-referential, but vulnerable, but interesting. And also, I think like a big theme of this other thing is now like putting horror in the real world. We live in a world with real world horror. Like we have a, you know, we have real characters like Jeffrey Dahmer. We have, like I said, a, a whole culture of people listening to podcasts about these violent killers. It's like, so, you know, what makes them, what makes these characters pop more? Like the, the simplicity of the masked killer now is, well, we get that every day, you know, just not without the mask. Like, so how are we going to scare? Like, what are the new ways of scaring you? And, and I think that that's like, you know, a really great question to these horror directors, you know? Yeah. Because it feels like horror right now is about trauma 
more than it is about being scared. Mm. That like, that's the dark territory. Like that's the dark hallway that we're exploring is like the parts of our soul that are scary and creepy and bruised, you know, but, but jump, well, I'm not a total fan of jump scares anyways, but, but the actual, like what feels fresh, I think we're kind of lacking right now. I think we're like due for a freshening of horror because I think we're, I think, I mean, to me, I've seen a lot of good horror films this year. I've seen a lot of playful ones. I really like fresh a lot. Like there's certain things that really jump out. I think master is great. Um, that's a film that's about to open, but I feel like horror right now is idea first scares second. And so it's great if you're looking for people with interesting things to say. It's sometimes less effective if you're just looking to be freaked out. I totally agree. And, you know, maybe we're finding more horror in small spaces outside of films as well. Like, I mean, obviously, Nope was a big hit. uh, And we have a lot of, you know, James Wan movies and things like that. But I also feel like I've seen a lot of people talking about Midnight Club and more importantly, something like Stranger Things, which kind of walks this line between like it's horror, it's thriller, it's throwback. And, you know, I think that we are now almost committing to the idea that we don't need it to just be a 90 minute thing anymore. We can really embrace horror in a different way. And I think the Midnight Club broke a world record for like most jump scares or something like that. Or like, oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. Um, I'm excited to watch that because Christopher Pike was my favorite writer when I was a little kid and I mm-hmm. still have all of his paperbacks. And I think he's the greatest. Like this whole time that we've been going through the R.L. Stein renaissance of like a decade ago, I was like, we're celebrating the wrong paperback writer. Like Christopher Pike was the greatest one. Christopher Pike was the most absolutely screwed up in the head uh, writer of, of all of them. And actually, oh, I have this, I'm just going to put this out here as like a cry for help. Um, I swear that when I was a little kid, I had an autobiography of Christopher Pike talking about his life and that it had like a midnight blue cover. And it was him talking about growing up in California and coming up with a pseudonym and everything that inspired him as a writer. And it turns out that I don't think that book exists, but I swear to God, I read that book and I have Googled. I was just like the other day, like, I'm just going to buy another copy of that. There is no record of Christopher Pike's autobiography ever existing. So maybe I made this up when I was 13 that I thought I read this book. Uh, But if anybody else out there has any idea what I'm talking about and can help convince me that I'm not crazy, I would really appreciate it. I love that. I've been looking for a book like that, too, that I know I owned. But it's so hard, you know, before everything was totally cataloged uh, to find these you know, uh, these like lost books that may not have been like a bestseller, right? You know, it's like, this is like the ones that kind of fell in the background. Um, oh, all right. Well, I hope somebody can help you find it. <laughs> I hope so too. Or just maybe this is my Berenstein Bears. We'll see. But, but I swear I read this. You know, before we wrap up though, we need to talk for a little bit more about Loomis because we oh, have yes. left Loomis out of this conversation. And I think as natural as Jamie Lee Curtis is, Loomis, he is a character who starts this movie off at like in 11, like 14 minutes into this movie. He is screaming at doctors. I'm not responsible, Sam. Oh, no. I told him how dangerous you he was. You couldn't have two roadblocks and an all points bulletin wouldn't stop a five year old. Well, he was your patient, doctor. If precautions weren't strong enough, you should have told somebody. I told everybody. Nobody listened. There's nothing else I can do. You can get back in there and get back on that telephone. Tell him exactly who walked out of here last night and tell him exactly where he's going. Probably going. 
I'm wasting my time. Sam Haddonfield is 150 miles away from here. Now, now for God's sakes, he can't drive a car. He was doing very well last night. Maybe someone around here gave him lessons. I mean, Donald Pleasance, I think, is the actor who shows up in this movie not being friends with anybody, not knowing why he's even in this movie. This is a part that, like, Christopher Lee was offered, Peter Cushing was offered, they both said no. Uh, So Donald Pleasance shows up, and I think Donald Pleasance has no idea what movie he's in, and he kind of, at first, doesn't care. There's this really funny British documentary that was, like, filming some of what was happening, just sort of like, oh, yeah, we're on the set of this, like, low-budget indie movie. And they talked to Donald Pleasance uh, a lot in the making of this film because he's British, and I think they're kind of bonding Brit to Brit. And he really makes it clear that he has not that much respect for the set of the film that he's on. As As there are parts of the script which I'm now doing for John, which I can't accept, but I have to bring myself round to seeing it in his way because it's his film, and then I can accept them. Can you be specific about that without being rude? I believe people are behaving in a way in which they couldn't possibly in real life behave. And that's always difficult, because if you're one of the people, then you're the one who's going to look like an idiot. If the director doesn't have some very good reason for people saying lines which people don't really say. In other words, I think the script is a bit overwritten. That's, I don't know, it's difficult to find an expression other than that, overwritten. I never quite know what it means. But I think it's a little melodramatic, and certainly in my role. Um, But of course, it's not intended to be real. Which I think is so funny, because Loomis does come into this movie like some sort of bad out of hell character. Just like, I'm big. This movie's schlocky, right? I'm going to play it big. I'm going to play it schlocky. I'm going to talk about the nature of evil. But I'm Donald Pleasance. And what I don't know is I'm going to be in so many Halloween sequels. I'll never leave this franchise that I am not taking seriously at all right now. Look, the guy showed up for five days for $20,000, which is double what the director, writer, producer... Uh, composer uh, was making for the film. And I'm sure that this is a time where I think you could do a movie like this and just think it's going to go under the radar. People don't know this, but Halloween didn't have a premiere in California or New York. It had a premiere in the middle of the country. Like it literally was in like a a small movie theater in the middle of the country. No one thought this was going to be anything. And I think that this is like, look, I've taken jobs where I'm like, Anyone gonna see this? I don't take that money. It's Liam Neeson's whole career, as you have pointed out on your letterbox. Yes, I do have a list of the Liam Neeson movies that you've never heard of on my letterbox. (laughs) Uh, But the but the idea, like, I think it's not uncommon to kind of see this happen. You know, uh, it. You know, as a matter of fact, I feel like a lot of these like older men added like a gravitas to these like quote unquote like teen films. Yeah. I mean, I I do like the scenes where you can just see Donald Pleasance get to screw around. Like when he's making fun of Lonnie, a character who gets a callback in like the modern, the modern callback. Hey, hey, Lonnie, get your ass away from there. But yeah, a lot of what people remember of this film is just like Loomis's endless scenes of talking about the nature of evil, about like, I mean, his whole beat on Michael is that Michael is just a blank. One of the deleted scenes is like Loomis going up to Michael when Michael's still a kid in the asylum and just being like, I know what you're doing. I know you're waiting. I know you're biding your time. You've fooled them, haven't you, Mike? But not me. But other than that, he's just like running around this movie being like, evil, 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 evil. And when you think about his whole plot line, it's so silly. He's like, this thing's happening in Haddonfield. I'm going to go to Haddonfield and scream at a bunch of people. 
Then I'm going to spend all of Halloween night waiting outside this house for nothing to ever happen. Who looks happen. more like a creeper, you know, than uh, hanging yeah. out in the bushes, just watching a house. I mean, that, and I think it's sort of like there's something kind of great about it because these actors are able to like you don't question it. Like, I do feel like when you talk about him like this, like, yeah, he's just running around just like it feels like you got two takes out of him. But even his two takes are pretty like it. It's kind of the same mentality of the actor as the characters, like, I'll fucking do this. All right, God damn it, I'm here. <laughs> you know, and it's like, and I, and I think, you know, in, in a weird way, I, I remember listening to, um, oh my gosh, George Kennedy. He was in the movie called Uninvited. You know, he's like, these guys are are a lot of side characters. Obviously, Donald Pleasant's had some, you know, bigger roles, James Bond and things like that. But like, but like you know, they're like, hey, you're gonna pay me $20,000. I get to like, I get to be a little bit of the star. I get to, you know, it's like, there's a, there's, like this is your this is paying me back. Like you know, so I, I do think that there is like there's a, it's a perfect thing because you're overpaying them or you know whatever you're paying one what they deserve and they're bringing a little bit more of an ego to it. They don't really respect it. And I think a lot of the times these older characters in the movie they have disdain for the kids, are angry at the murderer. You know, it's like they they're they're coming at it from the same point of view. So it's almost like you've created like the perfect. Um, method acting experience, like you bringing in somebody who's like slightly <laughs> irritated to be there, doesn't want to be there, but you know, it's their job. So I'm going to fucking show up and I'm going to do it, yeah. you know, like, but I'm not happy about it. Yeah, but you're right. He at least shows up with energy. Like if he showed up, it was like, oh, sleepwalking through this film and putting oh, yeah. disdain in there that way. It'd be miserable. I think he would have killed the whole thing. But, but honestly, to that point that we were saying earlier about like understanding the layout of this town, I kind of feel like I don't. Right. Because like what we know is that uh, from the very beginning where Lori walks to school is that she walks by the Myers place, that the Myers place is pretty close to her house. She's able to walk by it on the way to school, leave the key under the mat for whoever has the bad luck of buying this house that now has a dead dog in it. Um, But and then later on, uh, Annie picks her up and they drive to their babysitting street. Right. They drive there. So you get the sense it's kind of far away because. The drive starts when the sun is up. And by the time they arrive, it's like nighttime. You know, like you see sunset in the middle. That's like a scene that that Deborah Hill directed is actually like the girls driving as like magic hours happening. And then they finally show up at this town, but they've had to drive by the hardware store. Like, so I have this idea of the babysitting street as being very, very far away. However, at the end of the movie, Loomis is standing in front of the Myers place and he sees Michael Myers's car, which is also parked on the babysitter street or like near it because he like sees them and then parks the car a little bit further down, which makes you think the Myers house is by the babysitting street, which I don't know then how they wind up driving forever to get there. Unless as I'm talking aloud, maybe they're just driving around getting really, really high because they are smoking weed. And I do appreciate that Lori smokes weed. And that's why they're in the car forever. Otherwise, the geography makes no sense to me. I mean, look, you've watched this movie more than anybody else. And, and I, I trust your opinion on this. I mean, you know, you know. <laughs> so they're just high. They're just hanging yeah. out being high. I think that that's okay. Okay. I'm okay with that. I just need to say it out loud that I've always had an... It was like the 70s. This. No, it was the 70s in Illinois. They had weird weed. It wouldn't make you that fucked up. Like, you know, it's like basically like a cigarette. Like, you know, like I feel like they're not going to... Like that would be about the right. I, I'm I'm down with you. I'm I'm agreeing with you. Okay, so they're just like listening to "Don't Fear the Reaper" and driving around for like an hour, and then yeah, they go just to work. like I mean, I, I look, I drove around my town all the time. Like we go to the mall, then you drive around. Like it was like the only thing you didn't want to do is go home. So I think you know driving around town seemed about right. That's why they thought it was the boyfriend. You know, like they just say, hey, he's driving around town too. Everyone's just driving around town. You know, we're just oh yeah, they're just American graffiti. 
Yeah, like what do you call that? Like where you can't, uh, you know, where you just kind of drive up and down the same strip. You're not allowed to do that in a lot of places. I forget what it's called. Yeah. Uh, can I tell yeah. you, actually, on that note, can I tell you one of my most nonsense theories about this movie? Yeah. Um, on the idea of like movies made in the 70s looking back at the 60s, I think it's fascinating that Halloween 1963, where all of this evil starts, is a week before John F. Kennedy gets shot. So you could kind of say this movie lines up with like the death of American innocence. Ba-da-bum. Boom. There you go. I mean, they're, 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 I guess my question is, is like, you've seen this movie a lot and it, it shows like, what's something that you really take away from this movie? Like, do you love it? Do you like it? Do you respect it? Do you think it's not great, but it works for a lot of reasons? Like, I just wanted to see, like, you know, give you your Halloween ends moment too. You know, like, how do you want to, like, how do you want to wrap this up? You know, like <laughs> this you know. long extended period of my life. Yeah. Um, I would say that Halloween is a movie that I have come to really respect and admire. It it was never, it would have never been my first choice to put on. Like if I was going to pick my favorite horror movie from the seventies, it is one that we have not yet covered, which is Carrie. Carrie is by far my favorite seventies horror movie. I just worship that movie. I would, I would love to talk forever about that, about how that movie makes, you know, victim and villain the same person, which I just, I love, I love that conflict inside of it. But what I have really appreciated in, you know, my scholarly work on Halloween is it's really reframed for me how much of a difference casting the right person, directing them the right way is in horror. Like where I've really just come to live with in horror is just in this question of empathy. And so I think I learned more thinking about Halloween and empathy and empathy for actresses and empathy for audience members um, than with any other horror film that I have done. And where I really, really just fall a lot of the time is straight up Jamie Lee Curtis worship, honestly. <laughs> like, And also in using Halloween as an example to talk about, you know, the women like Deborah Hill and that female voice that gets injected in the horror films that make them so much stronger than they have to be. I would not say there is a strong female voice in Friday the 13th at all. No. But you feel it in this one. And I think that Deborah Hill falls so neatly into that category of women from the 70s who didn't get taken seriously because they were dating the director and deserve to be applauded. And that was almost my favorite element of doing the Halloween show was like talking about Deborah, celebrating Deborah. Deborah, who had a really hard run of it. Like I even talked about in in, in that Halloween series about how John Carpenter uh, breaks up with Deborah, like as they're making this film uh, for Adrian Barbeau, the star of The Fog, who he'll later marry, and how Deborah had to finish this film, you know, with her, you know, partner who had just left her, you know, and, and how hard that was for her and how she still showed up every day and gave this movie her all. And that there's this you know, tragic. Their 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 breakup is so recent that they have the rap party at the house they're still living in, even though he's dating Adrian already, because they didn't have a chance to even separate their lives. And I can't imagine how brutal that was for her, for her. Yeah. And you know, and she did that work. She shouldered that work, and she put in. She put her heart into this movie, and I love it as a as a movie about a a bunch of people who just made this happen. Deborah's friend is the caterer. You know, like this is exactly like a movie about a team coming together. 
Well, I do love this like renaissance of uplifting these people like Deborah Hill and Polly Platt, like, you know, where you can, you know, you see these people wearing like a Deborah Hill production shirt. And I, yeah. and I always smile when I see that. It's like, I think it, it's, it's great that they haven't been lost to history. And, you know, there are places out there that can get, you know, really focus on their contributions. I think that's a hard thing to do, especially when something has become so iconic, like, you know, the movies uh, that we've, we've, we've talked about here on the show, you know, to kind of say, well, but did you also know this, you know, about it? You think it's John Carpenter. John Carpenter's yeah. name is there, but but did you also know? And I think that that's really uh, interesting. Now, so I will say like the biggest heartbreak for me on doing the big ringer Halloween show is that Deborah was the one person we couldn't talk to. She'd already, she died, you know, long before. And she didn't leave behind a lot of good audio on Halloween that we could use. She left behind like a couple commentary tracks that we were unable to use because it had the Halloween music underneath it. Uh, and so you couldn't really use it for audio. There were some other like poor audio interview recordings and not in, not having her voice in there hurt so much, but it kind of made me need to talk about her more. And, and be like, and it, she was there. This is her story. This is her idea. And you know... Uh... I was just thinking, you know, and, and that was something that you were okay with, like letting her death, you know, affect not getting an interview with her. I mean, I thought about doing a seance. Yeah. I mean, I'm just saying like, you know, like if you really wanted to, maybe we could have, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to critique your job. I think you do a great job, <laughs> but again. Yeah. And, and you know, at the, so I'm not making this like a hagiography. It was Deborah's idea to put the sheet on Michael Myers and I don't like the sheet. So Deborah, I had a lot of ideas and I didn't love all of them, but I love, I love her. All right. There you go. I, I love it. Uh, well, Amy, let's see. How is this movie reviewed? Um, this movie was reviewed fairly well, actually. Even watching this with modern critical eyes, I feel like if you sit down to a movie that you think is going to be schlocky and then you get that opening tracking shot, you suddenly know, oh, somebody's thinking about this hard. They're putting effort into this. This has style. And I think it primed critics to actually take this seriously as a real movie, uh, which they did for the most part. Although my beloved Pauline Kael hated it. And this is what she said. Halloween has a pitiful amateurish script. There is no indication of why he selects any particular target. He's just the boogeyman, pure evil, and he wants to kill. Donald Pleasance delivers idiotic exposition about evil. And sometimes you think he's going to have to cross his eyes to keep a straight face. Carpenter is not very gifted with actors. He doesn't seem to have any feeling at all for motivation or plot logic. Carpenter doesn't seem to have any life outside of the movies. One can all, one can trace almost every idea on the screen to directors such as Hitchcock and Brian De Palma to the Val Luton productions. Carpenter also wrote the score himself, all four bars, and he's devoted to it. With the seductive tracking shots and the repetitive music, the film stops and starts so many times before anything happens that the boogeyman's turning up just gets to be a nuisance. It means more of the same. Carpenter keeps you tense in an undifferentiated way, nervous and irritated rather than pleasurably excited. And you've reached the point of wanting somebody to be killed so the film's rhythms will change. Yet a lot of people seem to be convinced that Halloween is something special, a classic. Maybe when a horror film is stripped of everything but dumb scariness, when it isn't ashamed to revive the escaped lunatic, the old, the stalest device of the genre, it satisfies part of the audience in a more ch basic, childish way than sophisticated horror pictures do. Wow. I mean, look, uh, you know, somebody was saying she's, the other day. She's calling know, it a grilled cheese, but she's saying she doesn't like grilled cheese. Yeah. and, and But I also feel like she's also missing the interesting thing about it, which is like, 
the idea of like the facelessness of it, the the there no rhyme and reason of it, and why that was a conscious choice. Um, but man, oh man, it, it's been so fun to like kind of look yeah. back at this movie. And I went uh, after watching this. I watched all three David Gordon Green films as well, and I, we, we'll talk about that maybe uh, in a later. Uh, podcast, but I do think that there's a lot to unpack there too, because in this race to bring horror or this kind of a horror character in, because like we don't really have this kind of a horror character anymore. How do you treat them? And I think David Gordon Green, at least in the same way as John Carpenter did, used this character of Michael Myers to talk about things in society and community in an interesting way. And I think that each one of those films, regardless of what you think of them, uh, is making a statement about society, mob mentality, protection, copycats, everything. There's something that is very interesting about, you know, what would this actually be? And one of the most interesting things to me, I've I've always felt with like, uh, in even in the new Batman movie was like the people like that are entranced by, uh, the, you know, the, the villain, like wants to become the Riddler, dressed like the Riddler, like, you know, it's same thing at the end of, uh, Todd Phelps Joker movie. Like, I like that idea. Like we're bringing this into our own world now. Like what is the new masked killer in horror and how can we stay true to that, but also have it represent a society that grew up on masked killers and live in a world where we oddly celebrate killers like you know like this is a time you know like we are like there's a glitzy glossy representation of jeffrey dahmer on netflix that people love and it's disgusting it's like and we love it is he sexy sexy dahmer it's like what the fuck are we talking about (laughs) you know but it's but you know there's i think that like that's the only way that this genre of and i don't want to call it slasher but masked killer uh horror kind of gross well I like this question of what scares you. And I think we should figure it out. We'll figure it out. Let's figure out yeah. what really scares you. Not now, but let's have this, let's have this creeping thought walk around in the back of our brain with a knife. I love it. Well, okay. Paul, I have an idea of a figure who became a symbol for horror, uh, a figure that I also find sort of mysterious and cryptic. And I think a movie that shook up horror audiences here when it came out. Um, I think that we should head to Japan and do the 1998 Ringu. Ooh, I'm excited that you're saying that. I only watch American uh, redos of foreign films, so this will be a first for me. I'm very excited. Oh, it'll be so great. (laughs) Um, You can watch Ringu uh, basically wherever you get a streaming subscription, but it's free on Amazon Prime and Roku, and you can watch it on Tubi. Tubi, my beloved little weirdo Uh, Tubi. If you want to get those commercials, get on Tubi. If you like listening to Unspooled, well, you have a lot of people to thank. As a matter of fact, you can thank our producers, Josh Richmond and Devin Bryant, our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy. Kim Troxell does all of our fan art. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you rate and review us on Apple and Amazon or wherever you rate and review podcasts. Plus, you can follow us for the latest up-to-the-minute discourse on Twitter and Instagram, but also on the Paul Shear Discord, where we host a very exclusive unspooled chat. It's nice. It's fun. Social media. If you want an unspooled t-shirt, go to tpublic.com slash unspooled. You can also check out Podswag for exclusive merch. Get back episodes of the show and bonuses like screen test if you subscribe to Stitcher Premium and check out the official 
API. That's the Amy and Paul Institute list at unspooledpod.com. All right. So we will see you next week for the last episode of our Halloween specials as we celebrate the ring. Go. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.